0: You're listening to an airwave media podcast. Misfortune befalls a man when he is alone, the individual is nonsense. Three teenagers, dressed in beach clothes, and each of them have three different transistor radios with long antennas almost hitting each other. They are standing right next to each other, but they aren't talking to each other. Each is listening to their own transistor radio. This cartoon, in the pages of the Soviet satirical magazine, Crocodile says, they have found a common language. This is not something that's good. This is a problem in Soviet life. They have found a common language. It was a pun ridiculing their individualized practice of listening and in a foreign language instead of communicating with each other in one common language. But... If this was meant to stop this behavior, it didn't work. The youngsters did it anyway. Listening to shortwave radio became a common pastime around the country. In the case of broadcast in foreign languages, it was done quite openly. From Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, The Last Soviet Generation by Alexei Yurchak. During the summers on the Black Sea resorts, one could hear foreign music and speech coming from small transistor sets on the beaches and in the parks. When criticism of this practice appeared in the press, it sounded misplaced. Soviet state jammed only certain stations among those broadcasts, particularly those that were American or U.K. stations broadcasted in the Russian language or one of the Soviet Union's languages. The broadcasts that were never jammed, Yurchek says, included endless stations transmitting in world languages, among them the BBC World Service, VOA in English, Radio France International in French, These broadcasts gave Soviet listeners an opportunity to become interested in jazz and rock and to study foreign languages. Thousands did just that. Whatever the success or failure of actual communism, Soviet society was, in large part, a collective one. And what was seen as bad was individualism. Individualism, a word coined, we believe, by Alexis de Tocqueville to describe America, It's something we still see as a good in America and the United States. Individualism. Not so in the USSR. Here's a popular Soviet poem. Misfortune befalls a man when he is alone. The individual is nonsense. Joseph Weisberg, the creator of the American TV show, said, I was certain Soviets were cynical rather than sincere. That wasn't always the case. The belief in communism was mirror image to how we viewed the spread of democracy. In Weisberg's view, we may sometimes be cynical about democracy, but we think it's the best system. So they, with a lot of people in the Soviet Union, about communism. And guess what? Even today, and all through the post-Soviet period, there's a strong advocacy to go back to communism. This collective thinking we might write off as all bad, but as we're about to find out, part of it is what ended the Soviet Union. Without the ability to work collectively and to deal with really difficult circumstances that can only be faced together, the story of August 19th to 21st just wouldn't have happened. The Gang of Eight has taken over the Soviet Union on August 19, 1991, and while they're doing it, they're being watched. They know they are. The coup plotters get a report card. Everybody in Soviet officialdom gets a report card, even the State Emergency Committee. The KGB has observed everything, and agents deliver their assessment to the Emergency Committee. The emergency committee declared a state of emergency, but they failed to enforce it. They failed to locate and isolate opposition leaders. They didn't disrupt communication between opposition groups. They didn't seize media resources appropriately. Bad, bad coup plotters, the report almost says. Nobody likes getting such a bad report card, though. And so on this day, Tuesday the 20th, if at all possible, there will be the correction. It is now that three of the eight plotters, including the head of the KGB and the defense minister, tell their subordinates to start planning to storm the Russian White House. Also in judgment, though, not directly writing the coup potters is the British ambassador. He writes to his prime minister, John Major, at this time of the situation. Like the KGB analyst, Major's man in Russia suggests they are screwing up. Demonstrations against the coup were shown in Moscow and Leningrad. Yeltsin was shown criticizing the coup to a crowd outside the Russian parliament. In reply, the emergency committee did no more than to express the hope that Yeltsin would stop behaving badly. That's what the Brits think of this. Now, for those at the Russian Parliament, the Russian White House, morning comes and there's been no attack. Yet that gives no one any confidence. They're just slow. The attack is still coming. It's just they needed the nighttime to get the paratroopers and the new tanks from Central Asia. In fact, many are sure it means that this will all be bloodier. Some want to go home to be replaced by new people who come in the metro who have heard about this novel event from the Vremya broadcast last night. Some here say that if someone replaces me, I will go check on my relatives. Some do, but many do not. They stay in the same rain-drenched clothes and wait it out. But one of the things that gave the White House defenders so much hope during that night The fact that a Russian tank unit had turned, put on the tricolor flag, and were now defending Yeltsin. It felt inspiring, hopeful at night. But with the daylight, an observer in the barricades noted that the tanks now looked slimmer than it seemed last night. Lighter than it seemed last night. Less armored than it seemed last night. And there weren't as many of them as it seemed at night. The most Russian thing in the world is a trip on a long-distance train. A slow pace, you might say a careless approach to time in Western terms. You are going to read all the books on your shelf that you haven't read yet. You're going to think all the thoughts in your head that you haven't thought yet. A train ride is a lot like life, a journey to a destination that you are not in command of. It's the most Russian thing to relax and peer out the windows at the nothingness, the space, endless, vast space. And why not? since you have six weeks vacation why rush on a plane it's too expensive anyway in other parts of the world they may ask how could you spend two three or even five days in each direction on a train just to visit parents in some siberian city or to bring your kids to the black sea or to go to that special healing resort there's no answer to the question. Russians just do it. Now, there are some caveats to this experience. You will spend that time in a tiny space, cramped four-person compartments in the most popular second-class carriages. Still, it's comparable to your apartment in Moscow anyway. You will eat pretty simple food, fried homemade chicken with boiled potatoes that your wife may have packed for you, or some piroshki from the nice babushka at the last train station. You drink a lot of tea, a bit of vodka, and when you drink your tea, it's not in a plastic cup. No, you drink it from a glass with the cool podstankinik metal holder provided by the train company. Despite the modest surroundings and cheap tea, it is like you're sipping from a prince's glass. Now, at first, you are at very on edge watching the people around you. Who among them is up to no good? Should I hide my wallet? You don't smile. No, but in a few hours, the ice melts, and everyone is talking about their lives. You know everyone's families. Of course, you must be afraid of the provost needs Forget American customer is always right type service. That's not how it works on the train. The woman is high authority in that carriage. She can make your journey a living hell if you start pushing your rights to her. On the other hand, if you bribe her with some chocolate, brandy, or even a smile, it depends on the person. She will make sure you're getting the best service. Russia, where are you flying, goes the old poem. In 1987, Time magazine sent photographers throughout the Soviet Union to take pictures of one day. A dozen nurses wearing white scarves with the Red Cross on them, sing patriotic songs as they march. It's the start of their drills to practice for emergencies, earthquakes, floods, or even imperialist invasion. They always sing to begin. A big, burly man runs through the freezing, snow-covered Moscow park. He's shirtless and running in shorts. Meanwhile, in Turkmenistan, women plant tomatoes in 100-degree heat, while in the Bering Sea, waris and seal hunters Prepare for their Arctic boating trip. America's Aleutian Islands are not far away. They're clad in traditional clothing, and they must show their IDs to the Soviet guards to get on the boats. Exercise. Elderly patients at the Institute for Gerontology toss lightweight balls into the air. Catch and toss again. It keeps their nerves sharp. Preschoolers dance practicing under a portrait of Uncle Lenin. The teacher plays piano under a tapestry of red gold, and black ribbons. Suburban workers ride the elektrika from Zagorsk to Moscow, reading newspapers or watching their hands. The seats are very crowded. While 30 Soviet Navy cadets in black and white stripes run in line by dawn's light next to the New River. Two office workers chat under a plant in a PA system, leaning on piles of folders. In Kyrgyzstan, SSR, a game hunter in colorful vest rides a horse through a green forest. On his right arm, a goshawk, a centuries-old hunting tradition in this valley. It is spring, and his companion helps him find small game. In the winter, he will hunt wolves. In Krasnoyarsk, young shirtless men haul bricks and shovel mortar. With housing shortages, they are doing the work themselves. A hatted man in a wool coat walks in a park past a stone hammer and sickle statue. It is five times taller than he. The air is crisp. In Tbilisi, babushkas, old women with buckets and brushes, prepare for daily work. In Kazakhstan, a camel is milked for a delicacy product here and in Moscow. The peeved camel is shaved for equally valued camel fur. The bright sun in Kazakhstan is in great contrast to their Soviet partner in North Russia, where Kono tribesmen ride reindeer sleds. Russia, where are you flying? Russia is moving, doing, hustling, the great poet Gogol said. The road is smoke, the bridge is thunder, and everything is left behind. Russia, where are you flying? So it is in Time Magazine's day in the Soviet Union, 1987. A waiter in a white shirt, black tie, tempts customers. With a bottle of Pepsi, he holds it like it's a bottle of wine. A white napkin covers his forearm. It is Armenia, but it could be Rome. An Air Force captain avails himself of a phone booth, confident he doesn't evade the photographer's eye. A bear trainer combs the hair of a compliant, ursine performer at the Sochi Circus. The bear accepts its grooming. A man soaks his arms and feet in a contraption nearby. Sochi mineral-laden water is good for the soul, good for the circulation, and this man has traveled 1,000 miles to get it, to receive the treatment. It's not expensive. It's partially covered by his union. A general at a military academy stands and answers, one of the six telephones in his huge wood-paneled office. There are constant jokes about the number of telephones and how it relates to social importance in the Soviet Union. He has six. His suit is dark green, and he is bemettled: Tonight, tanks are still in position around the Kremlin, the new leaders installed inside, former President Mikhail Gorbachev believed to be at his summer home on the Black Sea, unseen and unheard. Hindsight is 2020. Yeltsin is under no illusion, for instance, that a bad press conference has destroyed the threat. Yes, many authors, as we talked about in the last episode, have commented on that. But he's under no illusion. His security forces are certain that at this point, August 20th, the second day, given what has happened, the building will be stormed. And rumors, talk from soldiers and stray KGB sources say he will be shot. Yeltsin plays one weapon that he has, the propaganda game. He invites the foreign press into the building to see the defenses he does have. The foreign press is watched by Soviet officials and KGB. He shows there are barricades in every single office in this Russian parliament building, and Russian parliamentarians are armed. He's got a secret vault, he says. He doesn't show the reporters it. He shows legislators, once with podiums and gavels. Now they have machine guns. If Alpha Group comes in here, they will shoot back. John Major, the Prime Minister of the UK, has been just as unsuccessful in trying to reach Gorbachev as the United States has. All he has is what his ambassador tells him, and this is what he says. Coups against Gorbachev have been rumored for three years at least. What has happened is clear enough in one sense. The reactionary barons who began to put pressure on Gorbachev last autumn had their short-lived triumph in the winter with the departure of Shevardnadze." but failed in their attempt to use Lithuania as a trial run for a national takeover in January. Thereafter, the influence of the liberals seemed to be growing steadily, strengthening of Republican governments, elections that the Communist Party was losing, and the growing realization by Yeltsin and Gorbachev that they needed to bury the hatchet and work together. The reactionaries must have feared that their time was running out. A radio transmitter is driven from Naginsk, 37 miles from Moscow, to bring to Yeltsin's White House, so he can get the radio on again, the Russian state radio on again, and start broadcasting to people. It's not easy, because radio transmitters aren't controlled by the Russian government, but by the Soviet Ministry of Communications. How to solve the problem? Blot wins the day. Yeltsin's man knows a guy who owes him a blot, a favor, and he's given the password. Radio Russia, SSR, is back up. The symbol of these events is Yeltsin on a tank, but it should be him on a phone. He's working the phones, trying to get individual commanders and generals to turn and support his government. Don't get tangled up in this business. From the media side, Moscow Times, now a flyer paper, was churning out leaflets like an assembly line from photocopiers. Yekvenia Albats say that people march our flyers right out of their hands. Soviet Central TV shows emergency announcement CNN isn't available. Our sources, Albert say, who has sources in the KGB building, tell us that Moscow KGB is in the street monitoring. They're among the crowd in the White House. They've got people there. Some had claimed to be here to help Yeltsin, but were very suspect. Beware of the Czechist who holds out his hand, saying goes. Yeltsin sends his foreign minister to Paris. He is tailed and accompanied by KGB agents. When Alberts takes a ride around the city, traffic seems normal. It's only happening on a few blocks, one journalist noted. But it's not just Moscow. In Minsk, Belarus, painted inscriptions were peering on some houses. No to military dictatorship. Yazov, Pugo, and Kriychkov. Don't be fools. The president of Kazakhstan, Nazarbayev, emphasizes the anti-constitutional nature of the created committee and the illegal nature of the documents that violate Republican declarations of sovereignty. The Georgian president also issues an appeal. The most important thing that the West should support is only the power elected by the people in the USSR. For groups within the Soviet Union to appeal to the West is a very new thing, but it's different in Azerbaijan. Long happy to trade their relative autonomy for support of whatever Moscow leadership is. The same with Uzbekistan. Armenian as well. All either decide not to get involved or support the coup. In Uzbekistan, the leader there has long controlled events in exchange for giving Moscow what they want, keeping it within the Soviet Union. He figures he'll support the Emergency State Committee. And if that doesn't work, he'll declare Uzbekistan independent and become president anyway. Either way, he wins. In Ukraine, it's decided they will convene a session of the Supreme Soviet of the Ukrainian SSR. But they're already counting the votes. There's no support for the emergency committee. The Estonian foreign minister, Mary, who's on a visit to Finland, was instructed to remain there until further notice from the Estonian government in order to set up an Estonian government in exile just in case they need it. Thanks for the honor. In Moscow, an acquaintance from the KGB calls Yevania Albats that journalists are to be arrested. And she is to be arrested, her source says, along with 7,000 others. Thanks for the honor. It was good to know my articles have been noticed. Finally, Albats says, this coup is coming together. But she's got a bigger problem. We're running out of paper. They're trying to secure a printing press in Estonia and in Italy. We decide that tanks are the best place to plaster Moscow news. After all, they're moving around the city. It'll go along. It'll go around the city. That's the latest marketing wisdom, she said. The Moscow Times is becoming a byline now for articles in the New York Times and Liberation in Rome. They're simply printing what they're publishing. I think here, for context, is a good place to pause and talk about the distribution of the written word and samizat concept in the Soviet Union. Handing out paper with printing on it doesn't seem like much to us today. Might not seem like much to somebody in Russia right now, even with some of the controls that have been implemented. But back in Soviet times, the banned, or to use the emergency committee's parlance, unregistered newspapers that are now being handed out as flyers. There's only a six-year history or so of being able to do that freely, handing out printed word without any fear. The Soviet Union had strict rules that punished, at times, both the distribution of the printed word and the possession of it. Prohibited materials were treated much like drugs are in the United States. Soviet Constitution had free press and free speech. Uh, Article 50 grants all Soviet citizens the freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom to hold mass meetings and public demonstrations. And it sounds really good until you get to this sentence. These rights are granted in accordance with the people's interests and for the purpose of strengthening and developing the socialist system. It follows that none of these rights is absolute, either in theory or practice. I mean, so all media in the Soviet Union was controlled two ways. One way was that second part of the Soviet Constitution, which expressed the reason you had freedom of press. And then the second way was that all media in the Soviet Union anyway was controlled by the state, by the apparatus of it. So in television and radio too, but newspaper, magazine, and book publishing is controlled by state ownership of all production facilities. So everyone employed in them are state employees. Books with met that met with official favor, for example, the collected speaks of Brezhnev, those are printed in vast quantities. Less favored literary material might be published in little numbers. So it wasn't just all she's banning, but also making things scarce. Here's from Cobb Technologies for your eyes only the Soviet Union and the photocopier. When the first user friendly photocopier was introduced in 1959, consumers were static. The Xerox 914 could make one copy in less than seven seconds. Markets in Western nations welcomed them. The Soviet Union remained skeptical of this American innovation. The Soviets took measured steps to adopt the American invention. Soviet leadership worried that the ability to quickly copy and distribute large amounts of literature held the danger of allowing classified material to flow out of the country. So political opponents developed New publications, Samizdat, which really means self-published in Russian. Until you get to the point where they are photocopies, you're talking about using carbon copies, old school printing presses where they can find them, rewriting by hand. The Soviet government knew where photocopies were. Distribution or owner or possession of Samizdat would be considered a crime. It's only in 1989 when the Soviet Ministry of Interior Affairs announced that it will relinquish control over the acquisition, storage, and operation of copying equipment. That's only two years before the events we're describing today. An example of a well-known piece of Sami's dot would be, of course, the Gulag Archipelago. If you were able to read that, certain uh, the Tor Zionist publications that might inspire people would go get passed on. One of the more famous pieces was the Chronicle of Current Events, or Kronika. It starts in 1968 by a group of Moscow dissidents. It gets put out in one way or another, despite the fact that editors keep getting arrested. Its regular articles would be arrests, searches, interrogations, extrajudicial persecution, in prisons and camps, Samizdat update. News in brief, the persecution of religion. Eventually, they'd get into persecution and harassment in Ukraine, Lithuanian events. Chronicle is a way for people to become informed. They maintain that according to the 1936 Soviet Constitution, then in force, their publication was not illegal. The authorities did not accept the argument. Editor Gorbinevskaya puts a note in the fifth issue in 1968, anybody who is interested In seeing that the Soviet public is informed about what goes on in the country, may easily pass on information to the editors of Kronika. Simply tell it to the person from whom you've received Kronika, and he will tell the person from whom he received, and so on. But do not try to trace back the whole chain of communication yourself, or else you will be taken for a police informer. This informal network is the way that they get news to come back to them one piece at a time. And it's a way to protect the informal distribution channels of passing this underground newspaper through. Gorbachevskaya unfortunately is arrested and put in a psychiatric hospital for taking part in the August 1968 protest against the invasion of Czechoslovakia by Soviet troops. You had to be crazy to take on the States. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. two close associates, Yakir and Kressen, and they are persuaded to denounce their fellow editors of the Kronika on Soviet television. In other words, to get on the Soviet Central TV and say, this Kronika that's being passed around, you know, has no basis, don't listen to it. That ended the periodicals' activities for a little while. But later, three editors, Kovalev, Kodorovich, and Velikanova, announced their readiness to resume publication. Of course, that told the authorities who to arrest. But it starts a chain. And as each group of editors are arrested, new editors take over. When they're imprisoned, new editors take over. And the Kronika keeps putting out issues from 1968 to 1982. You know, I find myself in agreement with a New York Times article in 2014 that said Samizdat could be better than Facebook. As a medium, you know, the internet is faster. But because it's more discreet, Samizdat was much harder to shut down than anything the internet can provide. It's an interesting thought. Russians are used to reading material this. As much as there were crackdowns, and you could be, certainly if you had, Possession of illegal books—that could be a matter for militia or KGB or your workplace to be punished. There was well known to be an open used book market in Gorky Park in Moscow, and very often the authorities would look the other way. In the late 1970s, you have something new: the magnifon, the cassette recorder, and even Walkman. So now people can listen to merely a reading of some banned poetry band books, or just someone espousing pressing record on that cassette recorder, as I used to do when I was a kid. Like a podcast today, their views on something. Moldovian factories made pretty crude, but well-liked Walkman-type products, and they used to switch to where they could afford transistor radios to cassette players of every variety and listen to scratchy voices on tape, mixtapes taped over and over again. Music, jazz, and rock, and all sorts of things. Very popular to be traded. These are all distribution networks that you're seeing in play when the first thing they decide to do once printing presses are shut down is let's find alternative methods to get paper out on the street. And they do. No surprise that one of the things that get cheers the most at the Russian White House is the arrival of giant photocopier machines and trucks so they can start printing out more materials. Izvestia was not shut down by the government, as we described in the first episode, this very large Russian newspaper, much to their embarrassment, because they felt they had done enough to be censored, but the KGB didn't. The printers now will not print Izvestia unless Yeltsin's decrees are printed in it, and there's a standoff. The head of the newspaper, urged by agents, tells the printer to print it. They will not. Meanwhile, operators of RELCOM, the secret internet, the lone guy they think is their KGB tail, doesn't change and he doesn't move or tell them to do anything yet. They had sent out a note to the other Russian university members on RELCOM that said, say what's happening out your window. Just let us know. No emotions, only facts. And as quickly, they're piecing it together. There's only tanks in Moscow and St. Petersburg. That's it. They're not all across the country. Rallies and speeches are constant at the Russian parliament. The White House calls for general strikes around the country. Yeltsin has called for general strikes. Others are now calling for general strikes throughout the country in support of the White House defenders. After it's been televised on Vremia, anywhere from 20,000 to 50,000 defenders at the White House now. Here's Ian Elliott of Voice of America Radio. Outside the White House on Tuesday, there was a steady flow of speakers to inspire the thousands of supporters who gathered to, pre- to prevent the storming of the Russian parliament. Yeltsin, Sharonazi, Elena Bonner were enthusiastically received. Former KGB agent Oleg Kalugin exposed some of the secrets of the KGB and joined the democracy movement, introduced a KGB lieutenant colonel who appealed to his boss, Kryuchkov to a in the junta because... It was about to collapse anyway. This is the new weapon that they're employing in front of the way. We're going to say that not only is this wrong, but they're also losers. Samos vansi, Boris Yeltsin say when he gets to the microphone. Somos vansi, phonies, pretenders. Still, even phonies could win. Without your help, he said. Without your help, I can do nothing. We're with you, Boria, they chant back. Boris does not believe that the coup is a joke at all, even if some in the establishment may already be having a chuckle or two. If the plotters get away with this, then the shadows of darkness will fall, he said. I have resolved to resist these men, these usurpers of the Kremlin. Meanwhile, there's a terrifying development for those budding internet users at Relcom. CNN, the American network, carries a report worldwide that despite censorship in Russia, a large amount of uncensored information was flowing out, they say, through a new technology. And they showed a computer screen with the Soviet Usenet on it. It showed the address of the Relcom News Group, which could be tracked back to the Institute. The Russians can't communicate with CNN directly while this is airing. But fortunately, one of their friends in America informed CNN, get that off the air, you're revealing the source. Mid-broadcast, the computer screen is removed. In the Republic's more actions, Moldova takes one look at the press conference and says not to enforce any emergency committee decrees in this territory. It's only a tiny republic on the border of Eastern Europe, a powerhouse for industrialization for its time. Its loss long-term, would be a problem for the USSR. Alexei II, patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, has been quiet. But now, on Tuesday, he adds a moral dimension. He says, Millions of our citizens are now questioning the legitimacy of this government. He doesn't bash the government yet, but he does ask what so many have asked. Where is Gorbachev? Let me stop you a minute here, because depending on how familiar you were, it might be weird to hear about a religious figure in the Soviet Union. The truth is, there was a lot of religion going on in the Soviet Union. Millions of believers. Though the government was officially atheist, and no religion was discouraged as bad, and you might even say unsuitable for real patriots, and inadvisable for career advancement. There were millions of faithful Despite how the the West may have viewed it, religion was not officially banned. In fact, the reverse. It was protected in the Soviet Constitution. Now, it had some of its limits, but millions of Catholics, Orthodox, Baptists, Muslims, and others were practicing in the Soviet Union. Of course, they were also Jews. Now, this is where the system comes in, though. The education system tended to try to undermine religious beliefs. Any excessive religious activity might be watched russian tv was replete with reports about bad things israel was doing and being a advocate of israel a zionist was not identified as a suitable thing though churches were destroyed during the early soviet period some survived at the time of the events we're describing at least 50 churches were in moscow and a large religious center existed 10 miles north of the city. Russian Orthodox was strong. About 4,000 churches existed in Ukraine. However, as we've said, it was like any area of Soviet life, very monitored, you might even say controlled by the KGB, with a special directorate to look out at religious activities. So the patriarch starts to question the state committee but for every piece of good news there seems to be something opposite on the 20th they the defenders of the white house gain a religious voice but maybe losing their military at 2 p.m. general alexander lebed who has a group of power troops protecting the white house tells yeltsin i now have orders to withdraw yeltsin says no keep them here i have an oath lebed will respond his oath is currently to the Soviet government, not the Russian one, even if that command chain is a little fuzzy right now. In a few days, the Supreme Soviet will set things straight. Lebed thinks, this is mostly symbolic anyway. A few anti-tank missiles will burn the plastic in this Russian parliament building. The fire will be so intense that people will jump out of the windows. He gives them an option, though. Boris, you should decree yourself commander-in-chief of the forces. In cities that few Westerners may have heard of, Kharkov, Tomsk, Asov, Krasnodar, newspapers start printing things that Muscovites can't read. They print what Yeltsin is saying in full. So in some of the republics, they're getting better information than the censored information on Moscow streets. President Bush calls Yeltsin. That took way too long, many felt. They remembered his appearance in Ukraine early in the year, where he told the budding patriots, in effect, to stay with Gorbachev, to stay with the Union, to calm down a bit, to not cite a false choice between independence and reform. Critics in the U.S. and Eastern Europe, too, called it the Chicken Kiev speech. And Bush lost a lot of Ukrainian-American support. As part of that trip, Gorbachev allows Yanayev to fly with Bush. It allowed Bush to make a connection, which may have dulled Bush's opinion of who is leading the government now. Okay, it's the guy that I met on the plane. Now when Bush speaks to Yeltsin, he treats him almost like a subordinate. I just wanted to get a first-hand report on the situation from your end. Well, the situation is eight individuals put together an unconstitutional coup. Yenev is using the pretext that Gorbachev is ill. This is a right-wing junta. I expect the storming of the White House at any moment, sir. Bush says, you have our full support for the return of Gorbachev and the legitimate government. We will reiterate that today. I tried to place a call with Gorbachev. I couldn't get through. Yes, thanks for saying that, Mr. President. If Gorbachev is sick, then we should demand international doctors. We saw that you made that suggestion. I agree that is a good idea. Yes, we have. Changes happen so fast, we should talk again tomorrow. I'm happy to do that. Then Bush says to Yeltsin, I would like to call Yenaev. What do you think? No, that's not a good idea. Bush likes Yenaev, and then again, Bush likes foreign leaders, and his whole claim to fame as president was how well he did in foreign policy. As a former CIA director and vice president, he knew the people of the countries of the world. This will cause Bush to give Yanayev and the emergency committee perhaps a little more time than others would have liked in his statements. On the other hand, let's be fair, there's really very little the American president can do with something that's going on in the streets of a city that Americans, other than the ambassador, don't have access to. When he went to Ukraine earlier in the year, he helped support democratic elements in his visit, despite his speech. But in America right now, This call between Yeltsin and Bush is welcomed, and all the news about Yeltsin and his speeches and the defense of the White House are welcomed. Why people, including a college student named Bruce Carlson, are glued to the TV sets following the day's developments, just as they had been yesterday. This is a full-time news story, and for CNN, just a decade old, this, just like the Gulf War earlier in the year, is a boon for their ratings. So Bush is more encouraging at the end of the call. Keep holding out. The American people are with you. But he must say, really, the American people are with you and Gorbachev. That call had to be encouraging for Yeltsin and the announcement of it, that Yeltsin has talked to President Bush, hits the leaflets, hits the streets, hits the phones, the faxes that are being sent between offices. Nobody is too fearful during this daylight. It's the night that has people dreading. Every hour of daylight is precious. Rumors of riflemen, pro-emergency committee with sniper rifles, and night vision scopes, who are loyal to the emergency committee, are coming. At the Communist Party not publicly known, a memo is circulated. Prepare to destroy documents. There's a rumor on the Moscow Soviet, which is pro-Yeltsin, will be stormed at 8 p.m. Can you send people? Some of the protesters leave the White House to go there. The Moscow mayor says the city will punish anyone who forms parliamentary groups. Radio Russia announces the storming of the White House is tonight. Women are ordered to leave the White House building again. Yeltsin talks to John Major and the prime minister assures him Britain isn't even thinking of recognizing this illegal government. Yeltsin tells him what he told Bush they're about to storm the White House. Major says if that happens there will be condemnation from the world. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from a corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. If you care about what happens to your money, you need to listen to SoFi Daily. Unlike other podcasts talking about finances, markets, and businesses, some spending more than 60 minutes to cover everything, SoFi cuts to the heart of the financial world in five minutes or less. In each episode, you'll hear about every financial piece of news you need to know, from previous market updates and future trends to things happening that day. It's a great way to track what's going on and how it could affect your money. So stay on top of your finances. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. The people in front of the Russian White House, are an audience today in sunlight. But as the sunlight dims, they're going to turn into self-defense units. And at the White House, there's continued chanting and ringing, where yesterday they were able to get a cordon or two. Now it's seven lines. 50,000 people. It's huge. And it looks like a lot of people when you were there in the middle of it. But as an eyewitness says, it looks so small When you walk away into the giant streets that really are part of the city of Moscow. They finally, only on the second day, have an actual PA system. And they've gotten that Russian radio up. The seventh chain is forming. Fifth chain, get ready. People form. People that were at the barricades the first night become special veterans by now. And are leading others. They know how to make lines. They know how to work in concert, collectively. I don't think it's unreasonable to look at the hard Soviet life and said this taught them that. Moscow does not believe in tears. Is the name of one of the most popular movies in Russia. Or really, it's unmoved by your... T- Moscow is unmoved by your tears. You can cry them, if you like. Or you can not cry them. Hunger's not going to bake you a pie. Nancy Reese went to Moscow from 84 to 89 and just interviewed people and wrote down conversations joke-telling, complaints, stories. Such a life we have here, Russian might brag, a theater of the absurd. Under socialism, we think it's normal that it will take 25 years to build a factory. Talk was so important to the Russian way of life. Many people relied on unofficial and informal networks to get their information. You couldn't trust what was being issued. Informal networks of family, friends, colleagues, and acquaintances, that helped them get information and to acquire the goods and services they needed. Goods were swapped much, and you ate as much as you could at your subsidized work cafeteria if it was good enough to eat. A big lunch, so hopefully no dinner was needed. You might fill your pockets for the homestead table as well, if your factory had enough food. A woman on tour and hungry wept because of the beautiful boots she could buy, but not when her friend's home were starving. She bought some small goods for all of them, and wept when she saw those boots. The heroic grandmothers, waiting nine hours for a kilo of sugar. Try getting a kilo of frankfurters, half dozen boxes of detergent, a pack of disposable diapers, some razor blades, and a pair of nice-looking shoes. That's a Soviet accomplishment. There were lines, but we made do When Muscovite said. I knew someone in the sausage store, and she would sell me privately through the back door. It was who you know, an endless mental currency of factors. You had to remember who owed you what. You have the hat store, and you conduct a private sale and let in the usher of one of the best restaurants in Moscow, and you will get a heck of a night on the town next time you were there. You'll get in alone. That itself is a feat. Or you could give that favor to someone else in exchange for another favor. They have the good milk. Another woman who walked in the airport found her job with abundant opportunities to bring someone to the head of the line. She was a resplendent source of favors. She could cash in on. Certain jobs had more blot potential than others. Honest work doesn't let you live in the stone palace, the proverb says. You can make a little money with a little navilo or side of work, to buy food at the better store, the co-op store. We had a practical, normal life, one Soviet said. It wasn't always easy, but it was stable. I wouldn't say things are bad. My mom tells me she was happy, and my dad too. And I think at the end of the day, that's what counts. It was peaceful. Train was so cheap, all could travel. The Western media gets us wrong trying to understand us rationally. The stereotypical line for food, for vegetables, for meat, for consumer goods. Something that if I was recording this podcast right in 2019, I would say, oh, we never experienced that unless it's like Black Friday shopping or when a new, you know, video game is released for the very first time or a rock concert. But now after COVID, We're much more familiar with basic items just simply not being on the shelves, despite that money in your pocket. This is not to compare America to Soviet Union, but just so that you understand it. Some workers would keep a canvas bag with them at all times. For that one moment, they would pass the market and wow, a fresh shipment of Bulgarian beets. Rumors of marketplace changes would spread across the chit-chatter of Moscow. Goods were not distributed well and it was not unusual for citizens of Other cities to take the train to Moscow. An hour and a half or more to go wait in line for goods. And when the Moscow people saw them, these people from the other cities, they said, my God, things must be really bad. How are we supposed to get anywhere when we spend so much time shopping, said one Soviet. I spent most of my 20s and 30s struggling just to get by. When you're adding lines and struggles to your basic existence... What is it doing to your life, right? What, what else are you not doing? Because you've still got to work. You've still got to raise children. I spent most of my 20s and 30s just struggling to get by. Selling items on the side just to make ends meet was common, but it took time. Reality is based on absurdisms, absurdity, impossibility. Russian daily life is preposterous. Western science is disallowed. Linus Pauling was disallowed. Truth is ignored. How does this happen? We were better than the West. Why? Because we were told we were. Here's Annex Oroy on Quora, speaking about Soviet office life. You go to the office, you don't immediately go to work, you chat. Everyone tells a story, they share their stories with each other, all about the relatives who went somewhere, and this is what they brought back. Can you believe the fabric that they have in Poland? They'll discuss the clothes they are wearing. This blazer is new. Do you like it? Oh, try it on. People will go to the restroom, try it on, and come back. There'll be a mini fashion show as they show it to everyone. Then lunch. You go for lunch. Maybe go to a bookstore and read a book or purchase it and bring it back. Come back to work. What book did you get? You start discussing the book. Oh, why do you like it? Well, because of this. Oh, can I have it? Of course. You give it to your co-worker. More conversation. Who will go on a tour to Crimea? Everything was public service. Waiters, plumbers on salary. Perks were more valued than money. Getting a job, getting housing with a job, buying a car through. We talked about in the last episode how pay had to be relatively equal. It was never equal. Um, everything was on salary. Public service workers, waiters, plumbers, So perks were valued more than money. If you got a job that had housing, if you could buy a car through a job's connections, if you got holidays perks, that was the salary. Stealing, wouldn't really call it that in most cases, was common. There was a boat race where none of the craft were built from legal materials. Everything was stolen. I think some of the plastics were meant to go to space, said one online commenter. Slackness, low discipline, laziness, chronic lateness. Signing buddies in as present while they sat home and drank. Foreign visitors would notice men on coffee breaks forever. Construction work would halt if one item was missing. Need to wait for it to come. Truck drivers' deliveries could not be found as a half-empty truck arrived late. Chit-chatting about nonsense. Very common. And not only nonsense. Vodka. Vodka at work. Not shocking at all. Some employees engaged in the regular 3 or 4 o'clock drinking towards the end of the day. That'll really get you to 5 o'clock quickly. Uh, Kind of an in-office happy hour. Others dreaded it. The office drinking spoiled their free time, and they had to treat the hangover the next day. Those in retail, where a booth or table must be staffed, did not have some of the flexibility of our office comrades, but not at all like your American salespeople. Soviet salesperson might give you the brush, turning around as you come by, Ignore that customer, moving in very slow steps, and offering the classic Soviet smile, which is no smile at all, putting up a sign that implausibly said, office closed, while the clerks were gossiping. But is it fair for workers to get money without producing anything? This question was raised by Gorbachev. And he'd lecture introducing market reforms into the country. A lot of the population would agree with Gorbachev it wasn't fair, as... Workers were getting off a bit. It was an easy place to work at times. That's true. But in their second role as consumers, they were suffering the other side of that. Not able to, having to wait in long lines, not able to use the offices they needed to get the work done they needed. In the Soyuz, the work is the state and vice versa. It becomes not only a matter between you and your boss, but a fraud perhaps, a crime against the nation. You could think of a communist state as a whole nation in high school. Not going to work is like playing hooky. Operation Troll conducted in the early 80s under In off was a war on inactivity and shirking. Workers were hunted at the store, the market, the beer halls, the Turkish baths, hauled in by officers. Not under Stalin, but in 1983. Yet in some other ways, people had to work very, very hard. We reference as consumers, they had to get their game on in a way that they might not do in their worker role. But even as a worker, come autumn, A lot of the white-collar employees needed to remember where their boots and rain gear were because everyone could be sent to the fields to pick potatoes. Men, women, scientists, PhDs, everyone went. Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears, the movie, is so popular that Russians binge on it. I I don't know how to describe Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears. I don't want to say it's like Our Wonderful Life. There's another movie... That is uh, that. I'm going to say it's like the Casablanca. I don't know. know, Not the same story, but it's the, the role that the movie has. Moscow does not believe in tears. It's a funny and a good movie. You can get it on Amazon Prime with subtitles. I recommend it. It won an international Oscar in 1980, though the director was not informed by Soviet authorities and the KGB accepted on his behalf. It's also a human movie. What do I mean? You watch that movie. Moscow does not believe in tears. And you might laugh at the Soviet Union, but you're not laughing in the same way we laughed at the country in the, in the 80s, the, the cartoonish looks in American movies. You're not going to think of people living there as mindless Orwellian victims with blank brains. The story is this. Katerina, Ludmilla, and Anatonia, who come to Moscow from smaller towns, which is a big deal, they get there but life is not so great, and they're placed together in a crowded women's workers' dormitory. Katerina Sirius. She's an upstanding woman who strives to earn her chemistry degree while working in a factory. She's smarter than all the other workers, but that might not get her anywhere. Then she's asked to house-sit an apartment for her well-to-do Moscow relatives, a famous professor's family, while they're away on a trip. Oh, great, says her roommate Ludmilla. Lyudmila is flirty and ambitious in the art of looking for a husband a well-to-do husband who has privileges and status. This is an opportunity, Katarina. She convinces her to throw a dinner party at the apartment and pretend that they are not cousins and friends, but actually belong in the apartment. As a ploy to meet successful Muscovite men. And it kind of works. They meet colorful characters, a famous hockey player, cameraman for a television channel, an aging Soviet lower official. There's drinking and snacks. It's a wonderful scene, the party scene. Various romances and non-romances begin. And then the movie leaps forward in time, from the 1950s to 1978, and Katerina has gone from being a down and her luck student to becoming the executive director of a large factory. Despite her successful career, Katerina feels unfulfilled. Ludmilla, her friend, is still trying to find a husband. Katerina's returning home from Antonia's dacha in the countryside in Electrica when she meets a man, Gosha. He notices, that she notices, his dirty shoes. More to the point, Gosha realizes that Katerina is looking at his dirty shoes. I don't like them either. I mean, it is a great scene. That scene on the train is, is wonderful. Well, love in the Soviet Union commences, but it's fraught with conflict, class conflict. Because the man thinks his new lover is poorer. And that's the way he wants it. And when he finds out that, well, Katerina's actually the head of a factory, he disappears. She becomes frantic and sad. The friends come to the apartment to comfort her. It's no use. She's so distraught. She'll never find a husband in the whole USSR. But, spoiler alert, a little... There's a way that it gets resolved, a very Russian way that it gets resolved, involving a lot of drinking. And that's all I'll say. Ronald Reagan watches the movie to get a better understanding of the Russian soul. What is that soul? Well, we alluded to it in other episodes, but I think it's a lot of searching, just like Moscow does not believe in tears. A heroic search for things that are easier elsewhere. Baby bottles, eyeglasses, typewriters, all necessary items. Seemingly commonplace, very hard to find in the Soviet Union, is a celebration of that struggle. Yet not everyone feels that everything was so bad. Here are some comments from former Soviet citizens. I find that everything's contradictory when you ask people simply what was life like. Some say good, some say bad. When you think about milk, you were thinking about a carton, but usually that was not it. Milk was sold in big barrels and you had to bring your own container and wait in line. Soviet shops typically had severe shortages of everything, except for bread and some other goods, and very long lines. Sometimes you had to wait for an hour in line to buy something. Things like meat and cheese were often not available. Service was not ingrained in the culture. Repairmen get around to things when they do. Drivers go only where they are to go. Cashiers only perform cashier functions. Restaurant reservations are meaningless, The menu, a suggestion. No one says, can I help you? It just does not happen. Anatoly Sobchek, who we talked about uh, earlier in the last episode, the mayor of St. Petersburg, said Soviets were intolerant towards others who make more money than they do, even if they do because they work harder, more hours. This was a collective society, and that doesn't mean all claptrap. You cared about others, about the collective and about the country. Yet, the society was getting a bit more greedy, it seemed, under Brezhnev. Corruption was so obvious that it started to spread to the lower and lower levels. Indeed, the ostensible reason behind perestroika was that only with a free press could the corruption be stopped. It was an inefficient system. Government Office of Pricing set the prices in the Soviet Union. It's not like we've never had that in American history. That happened during the Nixon administration to an extent, but it's a very alien way to run a comp, to run a country for a very long time. You were given an apartment, you were leased it at low rent. You were given a job because unemployment was illegal. Jobs weren't equal though. Entry level type jobs were given to college graduates, it's supposed to be a stepping stone, but many would get nothing else than something akin to an internship. Soviet Republican city jobs would expand not to offer more services, but to keep up with the demand to put more employees to work. Party membership in the Soviet Union was a lifelong process. Party committees were everywhere. They were a major factor in life. They would organize political events, political informations once a week. And one person would have to buy the issue of Pravda and tell others what the lies that they published and make it sound convincing. The party committees are the ones that approve promotions and give permission to travel to other Soviet countries. So I've said this a couple times. Now we're in episode four. This is a longer one than the other episodes. And I'm looking at Soviet life not just to look at Russia, not just to look at a foreign system, but to also look at ourselves, look at any government system. This is one thing that was attempted and what happens. And I don't mean to be simplistic about this. This, The purpose of this cast isn't to say things were so bad in the Soviet Union. Don't ever have national health care or something like that. It's just one set of circumstances with one form of government. Simplistic jokes about Soviet life that are often told in America don't do the whole thing justice. There are points on which Soviets were rightly proud and not as cynical about. And the one that shows up quite often is education. A visitor on one occasion might see a teacher with a group of adults sitting in the chairs that normally their children would sit in during the day. They feared the teacher's gaze. Mr. Bo- Mr. Naboski, your son Ivan is lazy. The teacher chides the father. He's not progressing with his division. And here the parent role: Are you watching him do his work? Mr. Iglov, Natasha is late every third day. Why can't you rise her on time? Mr. Shavrov, at this rate, your son will not make promotion. This is not the kind of parent-teacher conference one thinks about in the United States. Education was extremely valued, of societal importance. Debates about funding on whether education should be public were left behind. It was public, it was well-funded, as well as this nation could fund anything. Not only were parents involved, but there were student study groups. Wolfpacks that would meet daily and review progress among students. If a student did poorly, the collective student wolfpack would send a member to watch him to do his homework. Straight comparison. Soviet classrooms were harder than American classrooms. Yet that's not to say that all this was not criticized, as it was based on memorizing, repeating back large volumes of information, and not individual decision-making, critical thinking... Creativity was less. I was born in Moscow in 1980, said one former Soviet system. Generally, the curricular was excellent. I learned in primary school to the seventh grade. I compared to Israel, where I immigrated. USSR was definitely better. That's common. What I call the Peru test, and it's fair. Like, you know, the Soviet Union wasn't a great place to live as the United Kingdom or the U.S. or France. But if we're talking about 1980. We're talking about 1991. Most of the world does not live in the UK or Europe or France. They lived in other countries. And the majority of those countries weren't doing as well as the United States. The Peru test. Hey, Soviet Union wasn't so great. But we ate better, ate more calories, had more health care, had a lot more education than people in Peru. There's another test too. The forefathers test. Soviets always thought of the forefathers. It always seemed better now than it was then. Was the Soviet system, with its emphasis on education, and by extension, improving the future collective, with a babying children, paying for their education from 17 to 22, making them still children at 28 wearing uniforms and reciting the same lectures? Komsomonal activities keep one busy. "My son is dependent on me," a Soviet told Hendrik Smith. He never earns any money. I'd like to give him a sense of money like American kids have. When Hendrick Smith suggested he ask his son to get a job, the Russian cringed, ooh, I couldn't do that. Posters, propaganda posters, warned you not to spoil your kids and not to expose kids to traitorous American brands, to make them imperialist, material thinking, the image of the youth that didn't want to help with chores or housework but let grandma do them, was very common. In the USSR, children were forced to go to demonstrations. When online posters said, I hated it. Especially the 7th of November. No fun to spend a few hours under the rain, the wet, and snow, and the temperature just above zero. All kinds of silly pioneer activities. I hated when instead of school, we were, first, we were forced to work basically free labor. There were many ugly things during my teen years in the USSR. People tend to forget those things and only remember the good things, which there were. Another commenter who had lived in the Soviet Union, but also lived in America and went to a Catholic school said, if you had gone to a Catholic school during the same time, you would deal with a lot more oppression, with physical violence being not too uncommon. Yet this, this, I you can't say about the bad things without talking about what former Soviet citizens has have expressed. That they like a carefree childhood lots of free time and a hobby do you like sports do it anywhere and for free the best trainers will teach you for free you want to be a farmer you want to get involved the state gives you a lot of land and can help you build your big house you love to read many free libraries and everything for you there are problems but really you don't know about the problems you have no problems with work you have no problems paying your dentist it's all for free Tatiana Zaskar, a well-read sociologist within the Soviet Union, was writing now and saying that the rigid education system and the ambitionless work life, the command control bureaucracy might not all be a good thing. It was leading to a population that could not grow an industry or adapt to changes in modern life. It created men who behaved like the machine they ran, not men, but cogs. The rebellion came in the form of absenteeism, slacking, shirking, stealing taking a few products from the assembly for home use, or very often to sell it privately. An American viewpoint on life can be seen in the online post of Deborah Kotcher, a student who went on an exchange program in the early 80s. She noted many things. The bright Scandinavian son of Leningrad. Her roommate Veda, from the Russian countryside. A sparse room with short single beds in the Leningrad University. Those radios hardwired into the wall that broadcasted official messages. They had volume knobs. They could never be turned off. Each morning, the anthem of the Soviet Union was heard, a depressing cafeteria with no fresh fruit, no vegetables, and soup with rotting potatoes. In escaping the gruel, she experienced what it was like to be shopping in a government store. She would go to it, and the salesgirl would not smile. They would sneer at you. Uniform on, kerchief on the head. Grudgingly, they got you the item that you pointed out. Hmm, not that easy. You got a chit of paper related to the item that you pointed out. This far you had finally got her attention. You then took that chit of paper to a new line and waited in that new line. Then a new girl gave you the non-smile once over. Some of that was because culture was a foreigner and shopping in the store. And then you paid. Then back to the original line with Miss Sneer and your receipt in hand to pick up your stuff now. Maybe some onions and some cheese for grilled cheese sandwiches while you're gathering those onions and that cheese, being stared at by babushkas and jostled by heavy Russians in a hurry. Now, maybe they should stare a little because when she was supposed to be a foreigner going in the special foreign store in Leningrad, and indeed she was supposed to be, but why? The dollar there was 1.5 to the ruble. But that was the Soviet government value. The real value was so much more, 8, maybe 15 rubles if you had an American dollar. Jeans were highly valuable, and Deborah came back with no jeans that she brought with her but with lovely Soviet sailor shirts. Black markets and opportunities to buy and trade existed wherever foreigners did. Always heard on the radio about the West in a negative sense, focusing on war, military, hunger, homeless, how much Americans spent on their military and kept people hungry. She didn't realize it was the same USA that she came from and learned Russian in. She turned 21 in Leningrad, and it's the right place for that. Lots of vodka for Christmas, some gifts, a bleak little tree, and some chocolate.